Well, we come to the end of a two, three-year journey together as a church in the Gospel of John. We completed it last week, and yet I feel the need to go back and board an airplane and fly over. And so we're at the runway, and so let's get on a plane and just take one more sweeping look at the Gospel of John. It's been quite an adventure. We have certainly climbed a mountain that led to life and to love, and uh, I pray it's been a blessing to you. It's been a blessing to me to preach. The Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, um, is absolutely necessary in the portrait of Jesus Christ. Every Gospel has a particular theological agenda. Each Gospel has a bent given to it by its author and by the Holy Spirit to show an angle of Jesus Christ that the others don't. Now run down the angles just so you know John's place in the scheme of things. Matthew was written by Matthew to project the concept and truth that Jesus is king, the king of the Jews. I find it fascinating that Matthew, who was a tax collector, hated among the Jews, that God will use that Jew to write a gospel about the king of the Jews. The second gospel is Mark, which is a gospel which portrays the servanthood of Jesus Christ, that he was the servant of all men, that he, was, that he came to die as a ransom for us. And there's more action in the gospel of Mark. And again, I find it fascinating that it was written by a man named Mark, who failed as a servant on a missionary journey of Paul the Apostle. Uh, things got tough, he went home to mom, and here you have a failed servant writing about the greatest servant who ever lived. Thirdly, you have Luke, whose goal in his gospel is to portray Christ as fully human, that he was man, every bit of man as we are man, and yet so much more. And I find it again fascinating that Luke, who was a physician, a doctor, a medical doctor, and you read through his gospel and you hear all kinds of details about the medical situations of folks, that he would be chosen to write a gospel that portrayed, portrayed Christ as fully human. But we're missing something if that's all we've got in the gospels. Because I, I can't quite comprehend I can't quite understand where the authority comes in Matthew for him to be the king. What is the source of his authority to be a king of the Jews? I don't know in Mark how he can be a perfect high-level servant when all I can think about as a servant is someone low-level. Where does he get his high view of servanthood in Mark? Where does he get his authority as a king? In, in Luke, how does he gain a perfect life in 33 years? Never thinking, never acting out any sinful impulse. Yes, being tempted, but never subjecting to sin and submitting to its, its call on him. Where does he get his authority? How can he be the servant in Mark? How can he be sinless as a man? The Gospel of John tells me Jesus is God. 
That's the, that's the nail in the coffin. That is the final statement that makes it all make sense. He gains his authority to be a king because he is God. He can be the high-level servant because he is God. He can be sinless, fully man, because he is God in the flesh. That's John's theological agenda, that he is deity. So I want us to sweep through. I'm not going to direct you to all the verses because it's just too many. But you've studied it with me. But John chapter 1, in the prologue, he starts right off. There is no genealogy, as you find in Matthew. There is no genealogy, as you find in Luke, because God has no genealogy. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was not, and as the Jehovah Witness Bible says, the Word was a God. You know, there's no Greek word for a. They stuck it in there. In the Greek, it was the Word was God. Skip down to verse 14. You know it as well as I do. Verse 14 says, and the word became flesh, and he pitched his tent among us. God became flesh. This is John's theological agenda, and he nails it in the prologue. Well, I'm just going to randomly fly over this countryside. I want you to know that it begins in verse 18 to tell his origin. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side. And at this point, I prefer the King James translation, was in the Father's bosom. Same thing, at his side, in his bosom, he he has made him known. Two things, Jesus fully reveals God because he was. And second of all, a gospel that began with Jesus coming from the bosom and side of the Father ends with his conversation with a disciple named John, who the effect of his presence, Jesus' presence, caused John to to recline in his bosom at the Last Supper. This is the ultimate goal, isn't it? We who were rebels... Now rest in the one who we were rebellious against. This is the mighty work of the gospel. Well, in the gospel of John, you have seven I am's. And I'm just going to go through them with you as a plane ride over. First of all, he declared in John chapter 6 that I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the food that gives you sustenance. I'm the stuff that satisfies you. I was at a restaurant with Karen last night, and uh, I had a glass of tea in front of me, and it was unsweetened, so they brought me the glass with a metal spoon and a straw. Well, it's always dangerous to park a man in a restaurant where he can see the TV, especially when there's a football game on. I mean, it's really hard. You want to focus on your wife and listen to everything you said, but you... It's like you got one eye here and one eye up there. You know, and you, you tell on yourself when they score a touchdown, you holler and scream. And, but anyway, so I got distracted watching the, the Gators get stomped in the second half. 
And I reached down, I reached down to take a drink of my tea, and instead of grabbing the straw with my mouth, I grabbed the metal spoon. Instantly realized metal was in my mouth, and when I sucked, nothing came in. <laughs> Living on this world, what it supplies you is like grabbing a hold of a metal spoon and a glass of tea. It will not satisfy you. Jesus is the bread of life. Religion's not bread. Other people are not bread. You're not bread. He is bread. That's a hard thing to get settled in, isn't it? He's the one we rest in to give us life. I don't know who you're looking to. I don't know who you think is going to float your bubble, but no one will and no one can. He said, I'm the bread of life. Second, the great, oh, by the way, you know what the great I am is. Let me give you a little history of that. When Moses was told to go down to the people of Israel down in, Can down in Egypt, the last thing Moses said, well, when I show up, who will I say sent me? What is your name? And God gave Moses the name I am. Tell them the I am sent you. I am that I am. Not I was, not I will be. I am the ever-present, always I am. So in the Gospel of John, you have seven great statements. Because seven is the Bible number for completion and perfection. So first of all, he declares, I am the bread of life. Second of all, in John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Not a light, the light. I am the light of the world. You know, men have been searching for light for generations. You know that. Every time you get a leader and a ruler you think it's a good deal, you think, oh, they're the light. Doesn't take long for the light to go out, does it? You get a new government, you get a new regime, you get a new president, you get a new king, you get a new whatever. And you think, here we are marching toward utopia. And it ends up utopia is the same old pit that generations came out of in generations past. There is no light in this world that is not the light of Jesus Christ. He is the light that shines in the darkness. Thirdly, he says, I am the gate. In John chapter 10, I am the gate. Whereby those who enter into that gate find light. He is the access point. He is the one that we come to, that we enter into. Imagine entering into Jesus Christ. I am the gate. Just simply come. And you know you can't bring anything through that gate. You know that, don't you? That's the hard thing. That's the hard thing. People want to carry stuff through the gate. Through the gate. You can't carry your sin. You can't carry yourself. You can't carry your efforts. You can't carry your religion. You can't carry anything into that gate. You got to come empty. Jesus doesn't help a person get saved. Jesus saves that person. Jesus doesn't help you live the Christian life. He lives it through you. He is the gate by which not only we come to get saved, he is the gate by which we come 
to draw life every day that we live. The access point. Before you go out of that door in the morning, remember to enter into that gate whereby he brings you life. Make a difference in your day. Make a difference in your life. He's the gate. He also said in John chapter 10, in the same chapter, I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. Making all of us sheep. Now that's a little insulting when you think about it. I've never seen a sheep at a circus performing any kind of tricks. They're not the most intelligent. They mainly eat. You know that, don't you? Unless you kill them and they had a lamb chop, they mainly just eat. Once in a while you shear, once a year you shear them, you get all the hair off them, but then you just turn them back out and they just chew and chew and eat. They're not strong. They're not powerful. You know, you don't go through the woods going, oh, there's a sheep. We're going to be eaten. They don't chase you down. In fact, they run the other way. They're skittish. They're so unintelligent that when they get lost, they need the shepherd to come get them. That's why he's got the long crook on the the end of the stick to, to pull the sheep out from a cliff before he falls off. That's why the shepherd leads his sheep to still waters because the fast waters, he'll go in and drown all that wool. He's just gone. He leads them to waters that are calm, He is our shepherd. He is our good shepherd. Everyone who leads as a pastor or leader is an under-shepherd from his authority and leadership. And when he returns, all the under-shepherds will disappear back into the flock and he will take over his flock, which has always been his flock. He is the good shepherd. Isn't he good to you? He's good to you when you don't even know he's good to you. Watches out for you when you don't even know he's watching out for you. You ever miss an appointment? You ever get broke down with your car? And you think, why'd the car break down? Probably there's a wreck down the road. I told this story a few weeks ago. I was driving to church on a Sunday night, Wednesday night, one of those nights, and I was I always hit 295 coming from 90, always hit the same same thing. Well, I just went brain dead, went right by the exit, right by the exit. I thought, well, no big deal. I'll just go 95 through town and over. Well, I got to church and found out about the time I was passing through 95, a car went across and hit somebody head on and killed him. Might have been right. He's good, isn't he? He's good to us. He takes care of us when we don't even know he's taking care of us. He's our good shepherd. So he's our bread. I am the bread. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. John chapter 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. I take that which is dead and I make it alive again. I take the sheep who were dead in their sins. Think of it, man. When you were lost, you had no desire to love God, to come to God. There's nothing within us that called out to him. He woke us up. He knocked on our door. He took deadness within us and turned it to life. And that, wasn't, that didn't happen 20 years ago if you got saved 20 years ago. It's happening today. 
in your soul all the time. He is your daily resurrection. You know how you feel when you wake up. You feel dead, don't you? You get that coffee going, wake up a little bit. Spiritually, we are dead until he comes and makes us alive constantly. He's our life. He is our resurrection. Dead person can't do a thing for themselves. Just lay in there in a casket. You can prick them with a pin. They won't do a thing to them. Love that movie Red where one of the actors was dead in the casket. And, and his buddy didn't think he was dead. And so he came up with a big long pin and just stuck it down into his arm. And ended up he was still alive, but he didn't move. That's us. We were dead, every one of us. He's our res- resurrection in his life. He said, I am the way, truth, and the life. John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And lastly, he said, I am the vine. I think that's my favorite. I'm the vine. You're the branches. We are the branches. He is the vine. And then he told us to abide in him. Abide and rest in him. You know, I love Christ and I love the gospel and I love the word of God because it's so in your face and so simple. And men have complicated this stuff for thousands of years, putting all kind of regulation and ordinances and tenets and creeds. And Jesus said, look, let me break it all down. I'm the vine, and you're the branches, abide, abide. One more statement about I am that's kind of amazing in the Gospel of John. When they came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, you had a a, a big group of Roman soldiers who knew nothing about Jewish theology. They knew nothing about the statements of the great I am. And when they asked if Jesus was the one they were seeking, He simply responded, I am. Now, I know your Bible says, I am he, but he is not there in the original Greek. I am. And at his statement of I am issued such divine power that this group of soldiers fell back to the ground, onto the ground. It happened several times. But by the grace of Christ to relieve that power flowing through him, they never would have arrested him that night. They had no authority to arrest him. He gave himself to the arresting officers, but not before they hit their backsides several times when he said, I am. In the Gospel of John, there are seven signs, not miracles. It's very important that you understand the difference in the Gospel writer's declaration that these are signs, not miracles. Miracles are something that happen that wow us, that go, wow, I've never seen that before. But signs are something supernatural that point to something deeper. There's a difference. What Jesus did in the Gospel of John wasn't to wow us, it was to wake us up to the reality of who he was. It's a sign. Like the old 70s, here's your sign. Seven of those. In John chapter 2, he gave the sign of turning the water into wine. Here he was at a marriage. There were six basins made out of stone, clay. Notice the number six. It is the number for man. Clay, 
And by all things, they were empty. There was nothing there. He told them to go. They needed wine. So he said, go fill up with water. And when they opened it, it turned to wine. This was a miracle. This was a sign that Jesus Christ is the great giver of joy. Now, I've lived in Christianity for several years that took that joy away. It kind of, well, I don't know if it took it away. I, I just suppose the bondage that I was under, I'd forgotten. You know, in fact, if you ever get happy in Jesus, you're kind of scolded by everybody else because nobody else is happy in the deal. Isn't it beautiful? To be in a place where you can experience the joy of Jesus Christ because that's who we're talking about. Number two. Uh, of the second sign, he healed the officer's, the royal officer's son, and he did it from a distance, and he did it with his spoken word, and he said, go home and check on your boy, he's just fine. Shows the authority and power of Jesus to heal, not even being there. Thirdly, the third sign is the healing of the cripple at the pool of Bethsaida. It's a beautiful sign of the inefficiency of any kind of religious thing. To, to He couldn't even get to the pool of Bethsaida. Others stepped over him and got in his way. And when Jesus found him, he healed him right there. What religion couldn't do, Jesus did for that cripple at Bethsaida. Number four, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, which was really probably the feeding of 20,000. The substance that he gave. A couple fish, some loaves of bread filling 12 baskets for 12 apostles to hand them out, showing that he is the bread of life. And by the way, these miracle signs that he did, soon after it, many of them, he declared, I am the bread of life. They came and they wanted more bread. We'll get to that in a little bit. Number five, he walked on water. He walked on water. He stepped out and he's crossing the lake and Jesus walked on water. What is water? It's circumstances. It's stuff. The waves were kicking up that night. Life was going crazy. And here's Jesus just calmly walking across. Wouldn't you love to have seen it? Peter steps out of the boat and takes a couple steps. And down he goes. But he walked for a few steps on that water. Showing that Jesus is Lord of your circumstances. He walks on the waves. He's got it all down. Trust him in the midst of the raging storm. He is walking. In fact, don't you love the fact that he called to Peter, come on, come on, come on. Don't, don't, don't be in the boat all scared to death. Why don't you just come to me? And when we come to him, doesn't life calm down? For a few minutes, and then you start sinking because you get your eyes back on the problems. But even in the sinking, he reaches out and grabs Peter's hand, and instantly they're in the boat. He's still going to protect you. But it's a lot better walking on the water than going under the water, isn't it? You say, well, you don't know my circumstances. I don't know how it can be any more dire straits than sinking down in a, in a, a storm-ridden lake. I don't care what your circumstances. I really don't. Well, I do care about your circumstances, but whatever they are, Jesus is Lord of that. He walks on the water. Number six, he healed the man that was blind. It's in John chapter 9. He heals the man. Soon after, he says, I'm the light of the world. He heals a man who was born blind. Religion had pointed to that man and condemned him for sin. He's blind because his parents sinned. He's blind because he sinned. And st stuff in life, people, people always do that, don't they? 
It's somebody's to blame, somebody's fault. And Jesus answered, no, but for the glory of God, this man is blind and now he sees. That beautiful? We were blind, you know that. Blind to our sin, blind to our selfishness, blind to our shortcomings. Not even a good wife could open our eyes to our, our blindness. Our world evolved around us until he opened our eyes. And we saw the complexity of sin within us. But we saw the simplicity of grace and love and mercy. You know, a guy that's born blind and gets sight, not a whole lot bothers him anymore. Stub his toe, doesn't care. He can see now. And seventh and last, he raised Lazarus from the dead. From the dead. Shows up at the tomb, weeps, and then calls him forth. Isn't that beautiful? I am the resurrection and I am the life. He also, in the Gospel of John, gives the preacher his message. I don't know why this is so complicated for, for so many. He gives the preacher his message. At the end of the Gospel, he says to Peter, Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Simple, basic. Well, my question is, what is the preacher to feed you? Look at John chapter 8. Go there. If you will, turn to John chapter 8. I'm sorry, John chapter 6. Back up to chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. And I want you to look down at verse 53 when you get there. John chapter 6, verse 53. Chapter 6, verse 53. I'll give you a moment to get there because I want you to see this with your own eyes. Jesus had been talking to the Jews about this bread that comes down from heaven, that you could eat of it and not die. He declares that I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anybody eats, he will live forever. And the bread that he gives is his flesh. And the, and the, the, the Jews disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Notice verse 53. Jesus answers and says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. What is the preacher to feed you? Christ. Christ. What do you want to hear of when you come on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night? Jesus Christ. He is the only bread that satisfies. This has formed what's called Christ-ocentric preaching. Where Christ is the center of every message. It's simple. You go to the Old Testament. You preach the Old Testament. You find in it the truths of the gospel and how it points forward to Christ. Jesus was on a walk with some disciples to Emmaus. After his resurrection, he spent hours talking to them and he began to show them from the old testament how everything pointed to him he is the central theme so when we preach jonah in the belly of the whale we talk about jesus being three days and three nights in the belly of the earth we talk about god's work in resurrecting a dead christ to a living christ and now there's a message in nineveh where folks get saved 
Spurgeon said this, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great preacher of London years ago, said in England, all roads lead into London. The English and really the Romans built roads that were symmetrical and all were straight and they all led right into, he said, just like every road leads to London, let every passage of scripture lead us back to Jesus Christ. Everyone. In a couple of weeks, we begin Joshua. If you think we're just going to look at history, we are looking at historical context. But everything in Joshua is going to point to Jesus Christ. Because that's what feeds the soul of man. How beautiful he is. How glorious he is. How he is our bread. He is our life. It's called Christ-ocentric preaching. So when I preach the Old Testament, we look at other passages. We don't and they'll do this, we don't pull out of those things the fact that, oh, like the economy of old ancient Israel was socialism, basically. So there's a lot of social gospel preachers that will pull out of Hosea and all those verses to back up that stuff. That's not the purpose of those verses back then. Everything points to Jesus Christ. That's where we are to run. His deity in the book, in John chapter 8, where he forgives the woman caught in adultery. Now when he forgave her, he said, go and sin no more. The Jews knew exactly what he was claiming. Because only God can forgive sin. Only God. They took up stones to stone him. He said, what in the world are you stoning me? What good, what, what good have I done that you want to kill me? And they said, not for a good work that you've done, but by you being a man, claim yourself to be God. They knew exactly what he was claiming. Now, at that point, it would have been perfect for Jesus to stop and back up and go, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not claiming to be any such thing. But he never did that because he was absolutely exactly claiming that when he forgave sin. He did it in some of the other Gospels also. We saw last week when he was with Peter and John by the Sea of Galilee. And he told Peter, if it is my will that John remains till I come, wait a minute. That's a statement of deity. Only God wills those things. We would never say that. We would say, if God wills this or that. If God wills this and that. But Jesus said, if I will. Claiming deity himself. This is important for you to wedge within your mind. Because there are religions out there that teach that Jesus was the son of God, but not God himself. And unless a person understands and believes that, they don't believe in the right Jesus. They may use the word Jesus, they're not believing in the Jesus of the New Testament, and they are lost in going to hell. He claims deity when Thomas gives him the worship. Remember doubting Thomas? He saw the side, he saw the hands, and he said, My Lord and my God. Jesus never rebukes him for giving him that kind of worship. But I want to end the Gospel of John with this story back in John 21. So I want you to go to John 21. Uh, in, uh, in writing uh, uh, my next book, I'm struggling with chapters. 
I write a chapter that thinks it's the first chapter, and I get done, and I think, well, that's not the first chapter. I don't need to start it like that. I've written the chapter. It's going to fit somewhere. So I wrote a chapter recently that I thought was also the first chapter, and it's not the first chapter either. It's going to make it in three or four, but it's still not the first chapter. So Karen, in her English background, said to me this last two nights ago. She said, Mike, you know, every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You've got to start it, you've got to keep it going, and you've got to finish it, right? Beginning, middle, and end. It's got to have that element. Well, I want you to know that the Gospel of John has a beginning. It has a middle. It has no end. It has no end. Let me show you the last thing recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 20. Jesus turned. And he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them and the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, is it, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, what about this man? And you know the story. It's John following. It's Peter walking with Jesus. I want you to, I want you to, Leave the Gospel of John knowing this. The Gospel that portrays Jesus as Almighty God in the highest form of all the Gospels ends with the intimacy of walking down a common beach at a common lake with a common fisherman. That's the last thing we read. And he's still doing it today. He's walking with you, just you and him, side by side. The goal of the gospel is intimacy with Jesus Christ. Where he hears you, he knows you, you know him. There's the oneness of Peter and John together. This story will never have an ending. Never. For all eternity, we'll walk down a common beach at a common lake with an uncommon Savior who loved us in our, in our sin, loved us out of that, and then created a bond that never, never ends. What makes life spectacular and wonderful, it certainly isn't the stuff we own or buy or hobbies. You know what it is. It's the relationships we have with our loved ones and family. I've never seen somebody on their deathbed tell me how much they made. They talk about the grandkids. They talk about their kids. They talk about this, human intimacy. There's no greater, greater intimacy than you with your God. We don't know what Jesus and Peter talked about past this point. You know why we don't know other than the fact it's not recorded? We weren't meant to know. Because what's between Peter and Jesus is between Peter and Jesus. And what's between you and Jesus is between you and Jesus. You don't share that with anybody. Because that is the oneness that he wants with you.
He knows you more than anyone knows you, and he loves you with an, inf- an unsearchable, deep love. 